chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, and we want to read in verse 26, please. Romans chapter 8 and verse 26, and the two messages that I've got for you today are in some senses linked to what we've been hearing. We've been hearing very much about what God has done in the past, and I want to think with you really with what we require to do in the present. And my two subjects are prayer in Romans chapter 8, verse 26 down to verse 28 and then we want to think about priorities uh, from the book of Haggai later on this afternoon so Romans chapter 8 verse 26 likewise the spirit also helpeth our infirmities for we know not what we should pray for as we ought but the spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now that's our text, that's our reading. When we think about what uh, Douglas has been speaking to us about, it, it stirs us in this room to think about the the work of God and the salvation that he's been describing. It certainly stirs you to think about the experience of a generation that knew blessing in that way, in the reviving of the Lord's people and in the, the spread of the gospel and salvation in the communities in which they lived. And I suppose most of us have never experienced anything like that within our own community. When we think about looking at ourselves, for we've thought that our God is unchanged, he's just the same. He doesn't change, he is immutable. His desires for the salvation of men and women is no less now than it ever was. When we think about ourselves... And what we ought to do in light of what we've heard. Then we come to this matter of prayer as being one of the things that we need to think about in our own experience. We're thinking individually today, not so much our prayer meetings. That's another subject. But I want to focus in to a very specific area of our life and walk with the Lord. And I want to think about our personal prayers, our personal intimate experience with God, that which is not shared with anyone else, that which is between you, between me and our God. Now that's a very uncomfortable subject, if we're honest. I suppose if I was to ask any of us, all of us, if there's one area of your walk with God, of your Christian experience, that you would like most of all to improve, then if you're like me, the answer would be my personal, intimate prayer life. 
my experience with God. Not so much my saying of prayers, but my praying to God. I think they're different. And I wondered why it is that that would be a common problem for in conversation with other people, it's evident that prayers uh, and our, our prayer life is something that is spoken about more than actually experienced. It's something that we tend to read more about than actually do. And I wonder why that would be. Maybe one of the discouragements is the nagging doubt that prayer doesn't matter actually. That tomorrow if I don't pray, well tomorrow's not actually going to be any different if I pray or don't pray. It's just going to be the same. It doesn't actually matter. It might make me feel better, but it's not going to change anything. It's just going to be the same. And so when I'm, when I'm feeling good about things, then I'll pray. And when I'm not feeling good about things, I won't bother. And perhaps that discourages us in the matter of prayer. You might think that things will happen anyway. So it doesn't actually matter if I don't pray. And then you may hear others who would say, well, you know, actually, prayer is all about God changing you and not about the circumstances of your life. And so... You're not that bothered about God changing you in the first place. So if that's what prayer's about, well, we can give it a pass. We're quite happy with what we are. And we're quite happy, really, with our character. We're not that fussed about a change. And then there's the issue about knowing what exactly to pray about. I've got an app. I've got apps for everything nowadays. I've got an app. It's called Echo. And... All, like all of my apps, it's free. Don't buy anything. So, look at this free prayer app. I find it very helpful. Just because it's really, it's just like a prayer list. And it puts onto my phone what I've scheduled to pray for in that day of the week. And it comes onto my phone. And this reminds me and encourages me and helps me uh, to pray. But you know, sometimes we wonder, what exactly should we be praying about and what should we be asking or speaking to God about? And sometimes that can really uh, put us off prayer. There's also the solitary nature of it. It would appear to be the most solitary of all Christian disciplines. It involves no one else, just me and God. And anything that just involves me, there is, uh, there is the, the, the lack of encouragement through fellowship and through um, companionship and through peer pressure and through whatever. There's, that, there's the lack of that in relation to prayer. So for Bible study, you may study the Bible in a group, you may discuss what you study with other people and converse about it. That's not the case with prayer. Prayer is a very solitary experience. Well, if it is the case that any of that rings a bell with you and any of that connects with you, let's come to verse 26 of Romans because Paul wants to encourage us to pray and he's going to direct us to the involvement of the Spirit of God in our prayer life as an encouragement to pray. That's a specific idea. That's the big idea. So let's come and pick this verse apart and we'll come into verse 27 as we go through. So he says, and he begins this little section, and we'll not deal with the, the larger context really today, but he does begin by connecting this verse 
to the larger context of the chapter. And he does that by the first word, which is the word likewise. Now that word likewise is a connecting word. And so in order to understand what he means, we need to find out what he has already been saying, because he is connecting what he's already said with what he's about to say. So he says, in the same way, so we need to know as in the same way as what, before we can apply that to what flows on from the word. So he said something, and now he says, in the same way as what I just said. The Spirit helps our infirmities. Now if you were to take the time and go back up the chapter, it's sometimes a good thing to study in reverse, up a chapter as it is to study in forward gear, down the chapter, you can do it both ways. And if you start somewhere, you can work, in my mind, I can mind map, you can go up the way or down the way, as well as left and right in your picture. And here we're starting in the middle of the section, so we need to go up the way. And as you do that, you discover in verse 22 and in verse 23, he's used a word which he also uses in verse 26, and it's the word groanings. So for example, in verse number 22, if you just look at that verse, you'll see that he says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth, there's the same word, and traveleth in pain together until now. What's he saying? He's speaking about the impact of sin upon God's whole creation. Now if you want to see the beginning of that, you go back to the first book of your Bible in Genesis chapter 3 and you see the entrance of sin into a world that was unstained and undamaged by sin. And you see the effect that sin had upon the creation. And you remember in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 you discover that Eve and Adam sinned. Adam is held accountable before God for that sin and the entrance of sin into the world and the consequences that followed of death. For as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And then you discover in Genesis chapter 3 that the consequence is not only death, but God pronounces, the Lord pronounces consequences that would be experienced by Eve and Adam and all of men and all of women that would follow Adam and Eve. They would also experience the consequences of their sin. Now for Eve... There was a curse pronounced upon her in the sphere, the principal sphere of her service for the Lord. It's going to be harder for her in that sphere. And what was that? It was the sphere of her relationship with her husband and her relationship with her children. So in Genesis chapter 3, childbearing and motherhood, it's beyond childbearing as the physical act, it's motherhood is going to be a painful experience because of sin. Now we know that to be the case. It's not only childbirth in view, that motherhood is more painful because of sin. And how many mothers can testify to their hearts being broken by the effect of sin in their family? And it impacts the mother most of all. That goes way back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. 
There is also going to be um, a multiplication of childbirth experienced by the women because of the entrance of sin and the entrance of death. Because if they're going to, um, if they're going to, Adam and Eve, if they're going to populate the earth, then death is going to be a problem in that process. Therefore, there will be a multiplication of birth as well. The sorrows multiplied and the births multiplied. And then you come to the, the curse that's pronounced in relation to Adam. Now it's not pronounced on Adam, it's pronounced on the earth. And the earth was the principal sphere of Adam's labour for the Lord. You remember he had to manage the earth, he had to tend it and he had to keep it. These two words. And it's now going to be much harder for him to serve God in the sphere, the principal sphere of his labour for the Lord. In the sweat of his brow, now he will find that sphere of labour. And the earth is impacted by sin and the curse. The consequence of that is that the whole creation is grown. And dysfunctional. There is weakness, there is dysfunctional, um, there is a dysfunctional condition now in our whole planet. The thing is not in sync as it ought to be, it's, it's not working as it should be, and that is why we have all the consequences of bad weather patterns, why we have all the consequences of people who find it hard to feed themselves, hard to find shelter, hard to live in this earth, and the whole of God's creation is just groaning, just groaning. But then in verse number 23, back to Romans 8, in verse 23, the word groan appears again. And not only they, but ourselves also. So he says, and take the word they out, because it's in italics and the authorised, and not only. So verse 22, the whole creation is groaning. And he says, and not only, but ourselves also. Now he's speaking about the Christians. So everything, that is our whole environment, mankind and the environment in which we live, is dysfunctional, is broken, sin has impacted it, and Christians are not exempt from that. So he says, ourselves also, which of the first fruits of the Spirit, we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. We also groan within ourselves. And we're anticipating a day when living in a broken environment will be gone. When living with the impact of sin upon our flesh will be gone. And we're looking for that day of ultimate redemption in all its fullness. When our bodies will also be redeemed. In that coming day. So here's the principle. You have brokenness. You have weakness. And you have the intervention of God to change that dynamic. Now he says, in the same way. In the same way. Likewise. Back to verse 26. So he says here, in the same way, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Now let's focus on the word infirmities here. First of all, because this is the issue. Now, if you are taking notes and you want to break up the verse, then, and you want to circle uh, important words, that word likewise we've seen takes us back up to verse 22, verse 23 in that context. And then we have the word for, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. 
And then we have the word but in the middle of the verse, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, I know we're focusing in words and so on, but, you know, I was told this had to be the meat, and so this is the meat, and you're going to have to chew hard. So there are three words there that give us the structure of the verse, and it's important to grasp this. Likewise, for, but. These three words give you straight shape and structure to this text. So likewise is given us the context of the first statement. Then, in that first statement, there are two questions that are begged. For me anyway. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities. What infirmities? There's the first question. What's he talking about? It's the word what. Well, that question is answered with the word for. And what follows it? That answers the question, what? What infirmities? For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. There's the infirmities. And then also in the first little section, the Spirit also helps our infirmities. Over that word help, you'd ask the question, how? How exactly does the Spirit help our infirmities? Well, you get the answer to that after the word but. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So there you have your structure. If I had my whiteboard up here, I would have circled these things and written out for you so you could see it graphically. You've got the statement, likewise, taking us back up the chapter. The Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. What infirmities? For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. How does the Spirit help us in these infirmities? The Spirit itself, himself, makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. There's the structure of the text. Now let's go back up and see what we can learn from this then. So if he uses this word infirmities, now I do like the fact that Paul does not use the word your infirmities. He says our. He includes himself. He's not on a pedestal. He's in amongst the saints. He's saying, I'm no different from you. I'm speaking from experience. I understand this. This is true of me as it is for you. I often say, when speaking on the subject of prayer, that I remember I had one of these kind of light bulb moments when I was in my teens. I can't remember what age it was, but I remember sitting in a conference in Shields Road Gospel Hall down in Motherwell years and years ago. And... It was our brother Malcolm Radcliffe who was speaking. And apart from the fact that his hair always used to look perfect as well as his suit, he kind of thought that he was the kind of perfect Christian as a teenager looking up. And um, I remember him when he was speaking. I can't even remember what he was speaking about, but he made this statement that I've always remembered. He said that as far as he was concerned, Bible study wasn't a problem to him. He enjoyed it. He, he never forced himself to study the Bible. There was just a pleasure in it for him. And then he said, but it's very different in relation to prayer. I couldn't believe he'd said it. I couldn't believe as a teenager that that man was publicly saying that he had problems with his prayer life. That's exactly what he did say. And it was a great help to me to know that. To think that this man was having difficulties. That's what Paul says here. He says, our infirmities. 
Notice the plural, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. And he uses that plural word we time and again. But the Spirit also makes intercession for us. So there's no doubt that Paul is involved in this. He understands this. And he is saying, I have infirmities as well as you too. I have weaknesses as well as you. You see, where's the connection with what we've heard? This is the sort of thing that is connected to what we've heard. An understanding of our own weakness. I think that when we fail to recognise our own weakness, then we are not drawn to the Lord in prayer. We become very self-sufficient. We don't need them. We don't have infirmities. We don't have weaknesses. We're fine. But we're not fine. Remember the Lord Jesus did not say, without me you can do most, almost everything. Apart from the really difficult stuff that you can't work out for yourself, then I'll step in and help you. I'll sort it for you. It doesn't say that. The Lord Jesus didn't say, without me you can do just about 99% of everything you want to do. And that 1% will drive you to your knees. He says, without me you can do nothing. Nothing. He said, I am the true vine. You are the branches. And unless the life of the vine is flowing through the branch, the branch cannot produce fruit. If there's a disconnect between the branch and the vine, then the life of the vine will not flow through the branch to produce fruit. You remember Elijah in the Old Testament? When hearing about fearless preaching, well, Elijah was a fierce and fearless preacher. And he stands in Mount Carmel and he calls down fire from heaven. And he stands and he withstands these prophets of Baal to the face. And yet, when we come to James chapter 5, we discover this, that he was a man subject to like passions as we are. In fact, he was no, just, he was no different from any of us. He had weakness. We see that because he ran for his life when Jezebel was after him. I think I would have run as well. She was some woman and she was after him and she was going to take his life and off he went. But actually, he's sitting down by the brook in what can only be described as a spiritual depression. Mm. Wanting to take his own life. Weakness. We all have weakness. And here Paul is not speaking actually in general terms because we discover that he is now going to focus in on one particular weakness. And it's our prayer life that he wants to speak about. He's speaking about what he too knew. You remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he had this thorn in the flesh and three times over he besought the Lord to remove the thorn from him. But the Lord said, no, that's not, that's not what's going to happen. You can pray all you like, Paul. The thorn in the flesh says, My grace is sufficient for thee. His strength will be made perfect in Paul's weakness. Yes, God had a different plan from Paul, and Paul's prayers are misplaced. He's not praying for what God's going to do. 
Remember Paul in Philippians chapter 1. And he wrestles with this idea. In verse 22 to verse 24 of Philippians chapter 1. He can't decide what's best, what he should pray about. Should he pray that he'll be taken home? I mean, he's staying, he's in prison, and he's looking at the possibility of execution. And he knows that should that take place, he, he in a sense is released from this sphere, this environment, into the immediate presence of the Lord, and his heart yearned to be home with the Lord. He said it's very far better, and you could see him wistfully, if you like, just, just staring up into the sky and, and desiring to be home. But then he looks round about him and he thinks about the saints and he thinks about his service amongst the saints and he's drawn between, he's pulled between the two things. He knows better for him to remain and yet his heart's desire was to go and he doesn't know what to pray for. He's torn. You see, he's not talking about the difference between right and wrong. He's not talking about the difference between sin and unrighteousness. He's talking about that which does perplex many of us a lot of the time. He's just talking about decisions that have to be made. He's talking about prayers that have to be offered. He's talking about outcomes, both of which are righteous, but you just don't know what to pray for. It's not clear. You come to this point in your experience and and it's hindering your prayer life. You don't know. Hindsight's a great thing, but we don't have it. What decision should we make? How should we discern this situation? What choice? What pathway to walk? Well, he says this, that the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Now remember that the Holy Spirit, when spoken about in this verse, is a person. Now the word itself is a neuter word, but the context determines... That it is actually masculine here. The Spirit himself conveys the truth of it. And the indwelling Spirit of God. He's already spoken about the indwelling Spirit of God back in verse number 9 of chapter 8. When he says, but ye are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So he said, if you're a Christian, you're indwelt with the Spirit of God. Whether you know it or not, whether you realised it or not, that's what happened. And Paul expands that in his letter to the Ephesians and says, Upon believing, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. He is God's mark upon us and it is the telltale sign that we belong to him. The Holy Spirit is a person as much as God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. He's not an impersonal force. He has personality. Now you might say that some people have no personality, but I mean personality in the proper sense of the word. He is a person with personality. And as we come to this, there is something that the Spirit of God is able to do if we are struggling with our prayer life. He's able to help. He's able to help. Now that word help occurs in only two places in our New Testament. It occurs here and then it occurs also in Luke chapter 10 and verse 40. And the narrative of Luke chapter 10 and verse 40 is a wonderful illustration 
of what is said here in Romans chapter 8. If you went to Luke chapter 10, you discover this, that we're in the house in Bethany. And Mary is there, and Martha is there. And Martha, it says, was cumbered about much serving. It'll be hard in Martha. She's serving. But she's annoyed that her sister, does this ring a bell? He, he annoyed that her sister was not helping her. Some of you know my household well, and you know the cry that goes up about the dishwasher frequently to my two boys, and if one's doing it, the other one usually doesn't, and then there's a dispute, and so on, and it's the same idea. This is going on in the house in Bethany. And it says this, she comes to the Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? That's this expression. Bid her therefore that she help me. Now what what does she ask for? Does she want to stop and do nothing? No. Is she unwilling to serve? She's perfectly willing to serve. But she wants her sister to come alongside her so that they might serve together, is the idea. That the burden might be shared and therefore carried in a better way than before. The task done better when two are involved than one. That's Luke chapter 10. And that's the same word here we have in Romans 8 verse 26. The Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. It's the idea of him drawing alongside and sharing the burden. Not taking over from us. It's not that we're being told to, to stop praying. It's not that we're being told to sit down and be passive. But rather, the Spirit will come alongside that as we pray, as we feel our weakness as he's going to explain, then the Spirit is going to come alongside and he's going to share that burden. He helps our infirmities. Now you can't see him. But that does not diminish his presence and activity at all. The fact that he is not material. He is still there. So then the question is this, what exactly is he talking about with the word infirmities? Well, I tried to point it out when we divided up the verse, and it follows the word for, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. Now, when we come to this idea of knowing, here is something that we do not know. It's simple language, we know not. So it's something in your mind. It's something that you lack. Something we do not know. And what do we not know? Notice the word is what, not how. You remember the disciples said to the Lord one day, teach us to pray. Teach us how to pray. This is the issue of what to pray for, as we are. So it's what, it's substance, it's content, it's outcome, it's the meat, if you like, in the sandwich. And he says, this is something that we do not know. We don't have this information, and therefore it's debilitating, because we ought to be praying, but we don't know what we should pray for as we ought. We don't know the right thing to say. We're not sure. We're getting it right. 
If you ever felt like that? Well, how can the Spirit help? Well, we come to the second part of the verse. And you remember I said that above the word helpeth or help, we could write the question, how? And above the word infirmities, what? Well, what about the word help then? Above the word help, the word how? And how does the Spirit help our infirmities? Well, we're told here in this expression, but the Spirit itself or himself makes intercession for us. Let's just stop there. Because the intercession is then described with groanings which cannot be uttered. So that's the intercession. But let's come first of all to the point of it. That the Spirit intercedes for us. Now this is a marvellous thing. It's the only reference in Scripture, I think, to this very act of the Holy Spirit that I can find. Now, when you think about how he does this, there are two kind of views. One is that it is the person who is groaning. And the other is that it's the spirit that is groaning. I take the latter view, not because I'm a great theologian, but it just makes more sense to me when I read them. Um, great theologians take the other view. For example, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and who would argue with him? Some argue that since it's, I'm quoting, it's inconceivable that God would groan. This must refer to our groans, which the Spirit translates into specific requests before the Father. That's in his book in Romans, which if you can read through, you're a better reader than I am. It's massive. So he takes the view that it is the Spirit translating our groanings into that which is intelligible to the Father. MacArthur, in his study Bible, takes a different view and says that these groanings are divine articulations within the Trinity that cannot be expressed in words, but they carry profound appeal for the welfare of every believer. That makes more sense in the flow of thought to me. Because it's the Spirit who's making intercession with groanings. What is this? When you get on your knees in that solitary activity of prayer, that you feel is the most solitary of all Christian disciplines, and you feel alone, you are far from alone. Because the attention of Almighty God is fixed upon the thoughts, whether expressed audibly or not, that are in your mind or come out of your mouth. The attention of Almighty God is fixed on them. The Son of God, our great High Priest, our Advocate with the Father, at the right hand of the Majesty and High, is engaged for one of his children. His prayer. And from inside of you, where the Holy Spirit resides in your heart, as Paul wrote to the Galatians, there is expressed from the divine person of the Holy Spirit as MacArthur calls them articulations there is communication that comes from the Spirit of God there is intercession from the Spirit of God 
And within the whole of the Godhead, there is a communication taking place. Why? Because you are praying. And you imagine any less solitary activity than engaging with the three persons of the Godhead. And this is the marvel to my soul, with their full attention. Full attention on you. He intercedes. And there is that which is communicated that's unknowable, unexpressible to us. It's within the Godhead. It cannot be expressed in words. We cannot understand how or what that is. It's not revealed to us. It's not expressed in language that we can assimilate and understand. This is God we're speaking about. And in that perfect harmony within the Trinity that's unknowable here upon earth, the whole of the Godhead is engaged. When my knees are bowed, and when I begin to pray. And if we do not know what we ought to pray for, or what we should pray for as we ought, here is the encouragement. That as I pray in my anxiety, in my confusion, in my doubt, in my fears, as I pray when the way ahead is simply dark, without even a pinprick of light to guide you, when you are in a position where you do not know what is best in your prayer life, your family, you don't know what to pray for, your work situation, you don't know what to pray for, your assembly, you don't, and you're in a position, your health, whatever it is, and you are debilitated by this. Remember this. Don't let that stop you praying. Because as you pray, he intercedes. He intercedes. But he's only interceding while you pray. Now there's a thought. When you come to verse 27, this ought to give us confidence in this particular issue of the verse. What to pray for. Because we agonize about knowing the will of the Lord. And by the way, the older you get, I think the less bold you are in using words like that. God spoke to you, or that you're absolutely certain, or that you have worked out the path to take and you know it's all the Lord, and you become less certain with these things. And you learn that when older brethren and sisters speak about, well, trusting the Lord and coming to a conclusion based on circumstance and in Scripture and taking a step forward. And just trusting the Lord that it's the right thing to do with integrity. That's about as good as you get. And you can look back and you can see the mistakes and you can see the pathway clearer and the way back the way, but it certainly never to me seems very clear in the way forward. 
Well, let us take courage from verse 27 because it says that he that searches the hearts. Oh, listen. When you're on your knees and that's the most... Well, what can I say? It's as real as it gets when there's no one around you and and your mind is engaged with God and your head is just emptying itself of the things of your busy life uh, and then... As the time goes on, you begin to focus in fully upon the Lord and it is the most open you can be before the Lord. There's no hiding, there's no sham, there's no pretense, there's no form of words, there's no camouflage, it's just you and him. And remember this, he says, listen, he searches the hearts. He knows what's in here. As he listens to what comes out of here. He knows the the motivation. He knows whether you're real or not. He knows whether you're true or false. But he also knows the mind of the Spirit. Why? Because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. There is no disharmony within the Godhead. There is no contradiction. There is no cross purposes within the Godhead. And that is why when you you come to the Word of God, you discover there's nothing about the Word of God that contradicts the Son of God, and there's nothing about the Son of God that contradicts the Spirit of God, uh, that contradicts the Father. There is perfect harmony within the Godhead, and as the Spirit intercedes, He is interceding in full harmony with the will of God. No contradiction whatsoever. And that, by the way, is the context of verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. And he goes down to speak about God's ultimate purpose, God's will, relation to his people. And we know how it ends. And we know that there's glory awaiting us. And we know that it's all going to finish well. We know the end of the story. But we're talking about it a bit here and now. And it's not the end of the story yet. And there has to be prayer. And there has to be intercession. And there has to be relationship and intimacy. When I was reading some articles about this. One example of this sort of thing was Augustine's mother, Monica, and it's in my notes here, who prayed for years for the salvation of her wayward son, Augustine. And he told her that he was going to move to Italy, and she prayed that he wouldn't go. She thought that he would be led into further sin if he went to Italy, so she prayed that he wouldn't go. But he went, and he got saved. In Italy. You see, her deepest desire was known of the Lord who searches the hearts. But in order for that deep desire that was within her to be realised, how does she know what to pray for? Which country should her son, how does she know which country her son's going to go? How does she know that he's going to get saved in Italy? But she's got this deep desire within her heart. And so she just prays. She's praying as best she knows for the Lord to accomplish his deep desire for the salvation of her son. The Spirit takes that deep desire and intercedes 
before God. Their son gets saved and actually became probably the most influential theologian for a thousand years. The prayers of a mother for her son. When we come back to this, and before I bring a conclusion to this, I want to link it in with what we've been hearing earlier. As Douglas has been telling us about witness, preaching, testifying, God moving in salvation, I wonder if this is something that we desperately lack. It's not that we can make God work by how fervent or faithful we are. Salvation is not by works, not even by the work of prayer. It's not by works at all. But I wonder if God is going to move, if we are ready for him to move through us. I wonder if we have any sense of intimacy. That he would be able to direct our paths as he obviously directed the paths of men in a past generation. To go places, to be places, to speak to certain people. Born, I would judge, out of intimacy with the Lord. In a relationship with him in prayer and through his work. Close to the Lord, these men. Let's ask a question. Just exactly how close are we to the Lord you see we can talk about structure and format and we can talk about all these things we can talk about methods and all that sort of stuff and I'm not diminishing the importance of these conversations but to think that a work of God is done with only having those type of conversations is to be an error there are other conversations that we need to have almost with ourselves and this is the sort of conversation just how close are we to the Lord you often think that when you come to a ministry meeting um, it doesn't have the same kind of bite sometimes as a gospel meeting because you know when a ministry session finishes um, it doesn't have the same challenge often But I would like to just bring a little word of challenge just before I conclude this message. You see, if you come to a conference like this and you listen to his word, then you have to ask yourself a question. And the question in relation to this ministry is, if I didn't pray yesterday, am I going to pray today? And if the answer to that is no, then this ministry has not been fruitful in your experience. It doesn't matter whether we've learned something or not. What matters is the outworking of that in our lives. Has to make an impact. Has to make a difference. Has to change perception. Perhaps even lifestyle. Whatever it is. I wonder would you take the challenge? Will you pray tomorrow? Let the day after take care of itself. Just focus on tomorrow. Let's summarise this then. I'll get three points just to summarise and then finish. 
Number one, don't let the fact that you don't know what to pray for discourage you from praying. Paul didn't always know what to pray for, as we've seen, but he said this in Ephesians 6 and verse 18, pray at all times in the Spirit. Secondly, don't let the fact that prayer is not easy discourage you from praying. Do you remember Paul, when he wrote to the Colossians in chapter 4 and verse 12, he spoke about Epaphras, one of theirs, who was always labouring earnestly for them in his prayers. So it was hard going, his prayer life. It wasn't easy. Thirdly, don't let the fact that your prayers don't seem to be answered stop you from praying. Remember this. The Spirit is interceding according to the will of God. God will work. God is listening. God will respond to your prayers according to his will. We trust that this might be a challenge to us. And as we hear again later of the work of God, and I follow that again with thinking about this year, priorities where we might hear again a word of challenge about choices and priorities that we make in light of the gospel. <clears throat>